Welcome to Pastor Bill's Classroom. We are in our study of the Corinthian Letters, Lesson 51, entitled, Love is the Answer, Part 4. Hello, welcome back to our midweek study. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13, and then we're going to be in John chapter 4, verses 3 and following a story uh, of Jesus' life. So you might want to turn, or in fact, I want you to turn to both of those places. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to be down in verse 4, and then uh, we're going to be in John chapter 4, verses 3 through 9. Let's, let's pray, and then we're going to read the first uh, four, first five verses together here in 1 Corinthians 13. Heavenly Father, we just commit our time to you. We commit our hearts and our minds. We ask you, God, to open those both up to receive whatever you have for us, Lord. This is your word through which uh, you, in fact, it is you speaking. Help us to hear what you're speaking directly to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 5, If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess my possessions to feed the poor, if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And then here's the definition of love, and that's what we started working on last time. Again, these are not uh, uh, predicate adjectives. These are the way it's listed here. These are actually action verbs. Love is patient or acts patiently. Love acts or is kind. Love does not act in jealousy. Love does not brag, act, or, or act arrogantly. Love does not act unbecomingly. There we have the one first place, at least, that I've seen that it's been interpreted uh, as an action verb. So we're going to stop right there because we've Covered two, we're going to be looking at only two of the things that love does, or in this case, does not do. We've seen that love is a theme in Scripture. Indeed it is. In fact, it's the theme of all Scripture. You cannot understand fully the Bible without understanding love. And so to say that this is a critical topic is an understatement. Here's, here's how much of an understatement it would be. Jesus says the whole Bible hangs on two commandments, and they're all both, they're, actually, they're both about love. The two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest. And then the second, Jesus says, is like it in the sense that it's love. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, upon these two hang all the law and all the prophets, which is a way that a Jewish person that day would refer to the entire Old Testament, or the whole Bible that existed at that time. So the Old Testament hangs on love, the, first, the two greatest commandments, which are love God, love your neighbor. And the Old Testament hangs on that, and the New Testament hangs on the Old Testament. So the New Testament also, the entire Bible, hangs on this whole issue of love. So how critical is it? It's massively critical. No way to overstate it. Jesus said, among other things, he said that's how people would know that we're his disciples, not by our doctrine, interestingly enough, not by the steeple on our church, not by our stained glass, not, not by our mission statement, not by our... our uh, uh, giving, none of those things. They would know by our love. It's the key ingredient of any healthy church. We can have a great preaching, we can have great teaching, we can have great worship, but if we don't have love, as we just read there, it could be nothing. He, he, we're nothing. He describes what otherwise would be a, an incredibly religious life, tongues of men and angels, uh, all, all prophecy, all mysteries, all these things. 
incredibly, what we'd otherwise consider to be incredibly religious life, and yet it's possible to have all those things and have them add up to absolutely zero. You have a string of zeros. How many zeros do you need to make it any more? Well, it doesn't matter how many zeros you have. It's all zero. Without that number, the number one out in front of it, love, uh, the number means absolutely nothing. Love cannot be legislated. It really cannot be taught. It can only be received, and that from one source. Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, right? Abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What, what does the Scripture say? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. 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 It's out of love that precedes all the workings of God and should all the workings of the church. And so love is such a critical issue, so critical that we understand it and that we define it and that we get our minds wrapped around it. So today we're going to be seeing, as I said, two more ways that love acts. Again, these are action verbs. Love acts this way and doesn't act that way. We're going to be seeing two ways, in fact, that love does not act. And we're going to take them somewhat out of order. Uh, putting together pride and bragging, vaunting oneself, it depends on what version you have, uh, into one. And then we're going to be handling rudeness or being un unbecomingness first. And so we're going to pull them out and switch them there in verses 4, into verse 4 in the first part of verse 5. Uh, like I said, we're, we're done now with 1 Corinthians. We're going to be referring to it, hoping you remember that. But we're going to be jumping over to John chapter 4. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and turn... In my Bible over there, John chapter 4, verses uh, 3 through 9. So, for the first one, love doesn't act rudely or unbecomingly, uh, which is a, a flowery way of just saying rude. There in verse 5, uh, God desires just an overarching understanding. The plan of our life, God's will for our life, is that we be conformed to the image of His Son. You say, I don't know what God's will for my life is. That is God's will, being conformed to the image of His Son. So what does it take for that to happen? It means you've got to be surrendering to God, you need to be in prayer, you need to be in Bible study, and if you're not on those things, you're not walking in the will of God. Usually when we ask for the will of God, we say, you know, we're asking about something, some kind of specific, should I take this job, should I go there, should I date this girl? you know, you were asking for lesser things and we're not taking care of the major thing, which is being conformed to the image of Christ. Why would God answer us on these lesser things when we're not doing the first thing that he told us? I mean, it's an aside, but nonetheless, and it's important uh, aside, I believe. So what is the will of God? That we be conformed to the image of his son. What is his son like? Well, let's, his son is 100% at all times acted in love. The fruit of the Spirit is Love, abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. Hear him. Hear what this is saying. Let's consider a time in the ministry of Jesus in which he demonstrated that love, in this, in this case, does not act rudely or unbecomingly. Notice how unrude, if we could say that, he is toward this particular woman. It's a great example. It's a beautiful story. Uh, but a great example of how love does not act, or how it should act, maybe, in the positive. Chapter 4 of John, verse 3. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he's going from the north to the south. He has to pass through 
this mixed race area called Samaria where the Samaritans were. And of course, you probably know the Jews and Samaritans had, well, they hated each other. Uh, talk about racism. Wow, they both, they both uh, carried that ball real well. And he came to a city in Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son jo Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied in his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So that's, that's noon. That's 12 noon, straight up. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, asked me for a drink? She was not expecting that. And we're going to see when the disciples get back, they're shocked that he's talking to her. Because they, in their culture, this wouldn't happen. If he did talk to her at all, it would be very rudely. They would expect that. But mostly he wouldn't talk to her at all. So the woman's shocked, and they're going to be shocked. The only one's not shocked is the one who's operating in love. Jesus, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan? For and here's parenthetically. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans and, like I said, vice versa. Jesus according to the thinking of the day. So Jesus demonstrates love. And part of that love is that love does not act rudely. He's not rude to this woman at all. In fact, he's totally the opposite. According to the thinking of the day and our day, uh, Jesus was her superior. Of course, now he's the son of God. He's a superior to all of us, right? But just from his human perspective, he was superior. Uh, he's the superior sex in that culture. Man was considered superior to a woman in every level. He's the superior race in that culture, as far as the Jew was concerned, because Jews were considered, they considered themselves to be superior uh, to anybody, but especially Samaritans. It looked down a long nose at them. Superior in knowledge goes without saying. He's a rabbi, right? I mean, if you're just only going to consider him from a human perspective. He was, as we're going to find out, also very much superior to her morally. So these are all reasons why you would otherwise expect, as the disciples would, that he would be rude or short with her, because he's her superior. A lot of times our rudeness comes from that. You're not worth my time. I'm above you. I'm superior to you. And so I do not treat you with love, therefore, because love would not do that. Love would not act rudely. So, so several, couple of things, three things I want to point out to you, and he, there's several things here that we could name, but th three major issues of how he demonstrates love by not acting rudely. The first thing I want to point out to you is that he takes time with her. He's going to take time. Or let's, uh, we can keep reading here, and then maybe we should. Notice uh, verse 10. So notice, he doesn't just ask her for water. He engages her in conversation. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, now he's He's not just answering her question. He's bringing up something else that she needs to know. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So she's shocked, at, first of all, that he's talking to her, but now he's engaging in a conversation. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? She's... A little perceptive, isn't she? Who, who are you? Who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and 
his cattle. And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Notice he takes time with her. He takes time with her. Not only her, she's not the only one. He does this with a lot of different people that, that really no one else would have taken time with. No one would have taken time with her. She's shocked. Notice she, first of all, among other things, she's out at noon getting water. This is not when women went out to water. She's, she's out at the hottest part of the day because she's not allowed to be with the group that goes early. So she's an outcast even, even in a Samaritan culture, even among the women who typically were the ones who went and drew water. So, so among the Samaritans, she's an outcast. Among the women of the Samaritans, she's an outcast. And we know that because she's going out there at noon. So she's shocked because no one gives her the time of day, because apparently because of her moral situation. No one gives her time of day, and here's this rabbi Jew talking, male Jew talking to her. Wow. She's blown away. Jesus takes time with her. This is the way Jesus does things, though. He takes time with children, even though the disciples think he shouldn't, if you recall. The woman with the issue of blood, this woman was an outcast in that culture. Uh, the centurion, he's a, he's a Gentile. He takes time with the sick. He takes time with the demon-possessed. Jesus takes time. Why? Because that's the way love acts. Are you rude? Are you rude? Are you kind and gentle and give time to people? If you are rude, I can tell you why, because you think you're superior to people. That's a problem. Love doesn't act that way. It doesn't. Rudeness raises this ugly head most of the time, most often, because people feel that, or we feel that people are imposing on our time and that somehow they're less than us. And I don't have time for you, little boy, little, little woman, whatever it is. Uh... Would you ever, listen to this, would you ever be rude to Jesus? Because Jesus pegs this. He pegs it. In other words, he, he makes it to where the way we treat people is the way we treat him. Watch. Matthew 25. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, Jesus speaking, you did not do it to me. So, you're being rude? Would you be rude to Jesus? Think about it. It's not the way love acts. So he takes time with her, number one. Number two, he puts her at ease. Now, this is nothing to wink at. He, he really he, he puts, her, he puts her at ease with this conversation. So notice the response. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. So he, he takes time with her. He speaks softly to her. He speaks gently to her. He, he, he engages her in a conversation so she opens up. And she starts at least expounding on some of the things she knows, albeit not 100% accurate. He's, he's careful with her. Jesus said to her, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way out here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. He's very gently leading her into a conversation about her morals. Notice he doesn't go around them. He doesn't not confront them, but he does it in a very loving way. Woman answered and says, the husband, I have no husband. Jesus says, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. He knows her story. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to her, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> wow. You know, what was her first clue? Well, there it was, her first clue. He puts her at ease. 
I said, this is nothing to wink at. Jesus is the epitome of holiness, and yet people who were the epitome of sin were at ease with him. Isn't that interesting? He's the epitome of holiness. And yet a woman who has been immoral, you know, a bunch, feels perfectly calm there. It's interesting, we in our holiness, quote-unquote holiness, people aren't easy with us. You know, it's a statement, and I don't know if we're wholly to blame for this. I think the devil's involved in this. Nonetheless, a lot of unholy people don't want to come to our churches. You want to know why? I, partly why? Because they perceive somehow that we look down at them. That's just reality. Again, perception is reality. It doesn't mean, you know, hopefully that's not our intent. If our intent is that way, let me just say that that's not loving. That's not loving at all. Jesus came for the spiritually sick. And if you have a problem with the spiritually sick, and Jesus has sent you to represent him, you have a problem. You need to get over it really quick. Again, how can we change the perception of our church or church is when we don't act in love? How will they know we are his disciples? By the love that we have for one another. One of the ways they, that love is demonstrated is by not acting rudely. Again, if you're rude, stop it. Right now. So the third thing, Jesus doesn't just put her at ease, take time with her. He also extends grace to her. We read some of this, but let's, let's keep reading. So he continues to speak to her. She says, I perceive that you are a prophet, and our fathers worship, verse 20, in this mountain, and you people say, Jews, that is, that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, in an hour is coming, and when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know, Samaritans. They just had half, not even half the Bible to go off of. We worship that which we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Jesus, God is spirit. I'm sorry, Jesus said, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare, us, declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Notice how he led her alone very carefully, very lovingly, not being rude, speaks to her, engages her, puts her at ease, and also extends grace and not judgment to her. And we sometimes have an overwhelming desire to correct people. And uh, he, he doesn't leave her sin unpointed out, but he does it in such a kind way, such a loving way. And should we correct people? Absolutely, but make sure you do it in the right spirit. Here's Galatians. Galatians 6. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass... You who are spiritual are to bash him over the head, and that's not what it says. Who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, there it is, considering yourselves, lest also you be tempted. You're no better than him. By the grace of God, there you go, right? Make sure you have the right attitude, the right spirit, speaking the truth, right? In love, the Scripture says. What do we know when we... Don't operate in love. We know this. It doesn't matter what we speak with the tongue of men and of angels. We're like a clanging cymbal, clanging gong. 
So, so be careful. Nothing wrong with speaking, right? But do it in love. Jesus gave her grace, not judgment. So, so first of all, uh, uh, love doesn't act rudely or unbecomingly. And now the second, the second issue, we're going to be taking two words together, both pride and boasting. Well, they're related to each other. And out of pride, I boast, right? And these two are delineated in the, in the description or the, you know, the definition of love. But, uh, but nonetheless, we're going to put them back together. So love doesn't act that way. Love doesn't act out of pride, and love doesn't act in boasting. Uh, I read a story about a man who was uh, asked to come to his speaking engagement. So he stands up and gives his speech. He's a man that's used to um, being accepted well in circumstances like that. He's a good speaker. He knows what he's doing. He gives a great presentation. He follows his points really well. He's not getting a great response from the crowd, and he's not really sure why. He wasn't told about much about this speech. He was just asked to come and speak on a particular topic, of which he was well-versed in. And he speaks on that topic, but like the people aren't tracking with him. And their faces look good, he's falling, but, but he tells jokes at certain times, and he does things, and they don't really respond. And when, when the speech is over, it's sort of, uh, I mean, they applaud him, but it's sort of unenthusiastic. Yay, uh, good. And then after he uh, sits down, another man gets up and begins to speak in Spanish. He just thought, you know, this is the second speaker. He was a little disturbed about not receive, being well-received, seemingly so, in his speech. But the man who's up there speaking in Spanish, I mean, everybody is cheering. They're all following him. They're laughing. They're, they're just, I mean, engaged. He was like, it's two different groups of people here. And what he wasn't told was, and, or I, he didn't pay attention to the memo he got, was that the crowd he was speaking to was 100% Spanish-speaking and didn't speak English. So, so they were trying to be as accepting as they could, although they didn't understand a single word that he said, so it was hard for them to track and follow, and of course they wouldn't understand his jokes, and they wouldn't really know when to applaud. But the man who came behind him, of course, was speaking in Spanish. So, of course, he, he didn't understand Spanish, but he thought he didn't want to look awkward because he's just sitting there and you know, not doing anything while everybody else is cheering and clapping. So he thought he would cheer and clap too. So everything the man would say at the end of each sentence, yeah, 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 that was great, you know, wonderful. Laugh, 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 and everybody would laugh. And then applaud, applaud, applaud. And a guy next to him came over and touched him on the shoulder and said, uh, Sir, um, I don't think you should do that. What do you mean I shouldn't applaud? He says, Yeah, he's interpreting your speech for you. In other words, he was applauding himself. And that's a good definition of pride and boasting, applauding yourself. The Greek here in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is a very specific word. Pride and arrogance is the same root word, and that Greek root word refers to a bellows, uh, a wind bag. You, know, you, you fan a flame with this bag of wind, and it squirts the wind out one end at a high velocity and is able to increase the flame and oxygen content. And uh, what a great picture of what, uh, what, what pride and arrogance is, bragging and arrogance is. Bragging and boasting is the exhaust of a windbag. That's what it is. It's not the way love acts. It's not the way love acts. Pride and arrogance hold the prestigious position of being the first sin ever committed in God's creation. Of course, that's, pride is what caused Satan to fall. Pride and arrogance hold the prestigious position of the big seven in the book of Proverbs. The seven sins that God hates, right? It's position one. Watch. Proverbs 6, 17, uh, 16 and 17. 
These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. Notice first on the list, proud look. God hates it. It's not that he doesn't hate all sin, but man, at the top seven list, pride is number one. So pride and arrogance and boasting all lumped together is stuff that God's just insidious. It's an insidious outcropping of man's rebellion. Pride is dishonorable. Someone said it's the only disease that makes everyone else sick except for the one who has it. Great definition. Uh, love is not interested in anyone knowing its accomplishments. That's bragging. Love is not interested in pushing itself forward. That's pride. Love is only interested in what it has so that it can benefit others. That's love. That's the way love Acts. Love is always looking for an opportunity to lift others up, not self up. That's pride. That's not the way love acts. Not at all. Pride divides us, keeps us separated, keeps us from forgiving each other, keeps us from reconciling. Love does the opposite, brings us to forgiveness, brings us to an understanding, brings us to reconciliation. Are you acting in pride? Are you bragging and boasting? So how do we let love increase in our lives and keep pride at bay? Well, number one, a simple answer is, well, the whole overarching answer is, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. How do we do that? Well, several. I'm going to give you four things. Number one, make it a practice to acknowledge your own fallibility. How are you doing with that? Say it again. Make it a practice to acknowledge your own fallibility. Maybe make it a practice two or three times a day to say these words. Hey, I just might be wrong. That would be refreshing. Hey, I just might be wrong. Learn to enjoy that. It's true about you and me. I just might be wrong. As they say, there are only two facts that will keep us out of trouble, a lot of trouble. Number one, that there is a God. Number two, we are not Him. <laughs> hey, I just might be wrong. Why? Because I'm not God. Neither are you. So number one, make it a practice to acknowledge your own fallibility. Number two, take a true view of your gifts, talents. Are you talented? Are you gifted? Are you pretty, handsome? You have a position? some sort. Why is that? I'll tell you this, I know for sure, and you need to know this, God has given you those things. Why? Not for your own benefit. It's for the benefit of others. Those things are zeros unless they're used in love. Isn't that true? Yep, it is. So take a true view of your gifts. Number three, beware of flattery and praise. We all want it, right? Yep, but be careful of it. Notice what it says in Proverbs, the crucible for silver. That's the way you test it. Is this really silver? How much silver do I have? You put it in the crucible and get it really hot. The furnace for gold, same thing. Heat it up so that the metal separated. It all looks gold, but not until you get it really hot. How do you get people really heated up? How do you get them to the place where you really are testing? Notice what it says. But people are tested by the praise they receive. Eee. Want to know what's really inside of a person? Give them a bunch of success. Give them a bunch of money. Give them a bunch of praise. 
Whatever, whatever gets them boiled down to who they really are, that, well, that'll do it. It's not difficulty. Difficulty puts us all on our knees no matter whether we're faithful or not. So there's no uh, atheist in a foxhole. But man, you turn up the prophets, you turn up the good stuff in somebody's life, and you're about to see what they're really like. Are they really faithful to church? Turn up the good stuff in their life. If they disappear, guess what? Now, really faithful to God? Turn up the good stuff in their life. Are they still faithful to God? If not, then no. Be careful of flattery and praise. Adelaide Stevenson put it this way, flattery is okay as long as we don't inhale. (laughs) I like that. As long as you don't inhale, don't let it go to your head. So number one, make it a practice to acknowledge your own fallibility. fallibility. Number two, take a true view of your gifts. Number three, beware of flattering praise. Number four, seek to be like, that's the way we started, like Jesus. Why has God left us here? What is God's will for my life? That I'll be like Jesus. Here's, here's what Jesus was like. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you. That's where it starts. It's the way we think of ourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. There's, there was no reason, he had nothing to prove, because he was in every way equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Be like Jesus. How does love act? Not in pride and boasting. Not in arrogance and vaunting yourself out there. Look how awesome and all the stuff that I've got. No one wants to hear that. Everyone is sickened by that. And that's not the way love acts. How are they going to know we're Jesus' disciples? By the love that we have for one another. How do I know what God's will is for my life? To be like Jesus. He was so humble. He could take time for this sinful woman. He could take time for people who were no one else gave time for and love them and bring them to himself. We're called to be just like him. And the fruit of us abiding in him is love. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the great calling and responsibility we have to represent your son in this world. How do we represent him? How would the world know that we belong to him? By the way we love by the fact that love is the, the, the basis of all that we do, the words that we say, the actions that we take, the directions and decisions that we make. God, fill us, we ask right now, with your Spirit, producing your love in us, so that the world can see in the short life that we have that we belong to you. Thank you so much, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptistchurch.org.